Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, and I'm increasingly concerned about the state of the world and worried also about how to turn around some of the scary COVID numbers that we're seeing in this country and around the world. And nowhere, Mooney, more than in Latin America are the numbers are so scary. No region will feel the pain worse than Latin America and the Caribbean. And guess what? The poor and the vulnerable are going to bear most of the brunt. According to the World Bank, up to two decades of poverty reduction work in Latin America and the Caribbean is now at risk. And up to 53 million people could see their incomes fall below 550 per day. So today we will focus on Mexico and Brazil, the two largest countries in Latin America, and on their current challenges and profound differences, their leaders, their outlook. And we will be joined by the great Michael Reed from The Economist to talk about these Latin giants. And he, of course, authors the weekly Bellow column in the magazine. So let's start with Mexico, Muni. How about that? Yeah. 130 million people, Brazil with 210 million. They're all separate in language and colonial history and temperament. They've frequently been referenced countries for analyzing what's going on in Latin America. Brazil, on the one hand, is a continent-sized economy, and Mexico's proximity with the United States has poised both for a takeoff but that never seems to happen. You know, the expression, the sleeping giant that never seems to awaken. You know, both still are too dependent on oil. Both still struggle with poverty. Both still struggle with violence and corruption. And both have sophisticated business sectors and vibrant cultures. And they're vastly different places. But now they share one other unfortunate characteristic is that both are governed by populists from the opposite ends of the spectrum, who prefer to ignore COVID, and both are producing old-school policies, corruption, violence, and rising, rising, rising infections. Of course, Peter, Mexico's leftist AMLO just returned from an unfortunate visit to the White House, if that's a pretty generous word, where he posed for pictures and essentially bowed to Trump's electoral maneuvers, despite years of Trump's Mexico bashing and draconian in immigration measures by the U.S. president. Right-wing Bolsonaro, currently sidelined by coronavirus after downplaying the risks, has his own little bromance with America's president, and his populist playbooks are at play, disdain for the media, faith in hydrochloroquine, and they, that all coincides with Mexico and with the U.S. president on many fronts. You know, who would have thought, Mooney, that you, we would have a diehard socialist and a super right-wing sympathizer of military rule that would end up having so much in common, including this BFFing of Donald Trump. You know, unfortunately, they also share now also giant economic storm clouds. The pandemic promises to erase two decades of poverty reduction, and the rising middle class in the region is no longer rising. Indeed, it's shrinking. It is really sad as a Latin American to see how the Americas has become the new epicenter of the virus, spearheaded by Brazil and Mexico, of course, but not only. And it's also victim to a complex, difficult to see what the outcome is going to be, economic pandemic, weak healthcare and infrastructure, lack of adequate government messaging, the need for citizens to continue working to survive and therefore can't take care of themselves, dependence on raw materials and the disappearance of tourism have added to the staggering burden of contagion. Okay, so let's look at the some of the stats here and let's start with Mexico. The Mexican Central Bank, multilateral institutions and economists all agree that economic recovery is highly uncertain. 
The IMF predicts Mexico's economy is going to shrink by a whopping 10.5% this year. This would be the second straight year that the economy contracts. A wave of violence by organized criminal mafias is now engulfing Mexico City like never before. Mexico City used to be, for whatever it's worth, the city of 25 million people almost uh, was like this oasis in which the criminal mafias didn't go in. But now it's the, the violence is all over the place. And along with AMLO's decline, he's still very popular, but but AMLO's decline in popularity, they're adding to strained economic and social conditions. And so it remains to be seen what the immediate benefits of the revamped U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement are going to be and whether those benefits are ever going to reach the middle class. In Brazil, Peter, Brazil entered the pandemic in a recession. It rebounded slightly in May, but it looked like a fake rebound. It's now back on a negative track for a 6% contraction in 2020, and that also is optimistic. With 1.7 million cases confirmed, and that might change by the time we air, major cities are reopening anyway, and the economy has shown some slight rebounds, but unemployment numbers, however, tell a very different story at 28% and growing. And if you count the informal economy prevalent in Brazil, many believe if half of Brazilians are jobless and growing. And Muni, politically in Brazil, things are a mess. I mean, it's so complicated to explain Brazilian politics. Bolsonaro has this cozy relationship with the military, many of whom are in his inner circle. There are many, many ministers who are military and even many more vice ministers. And this has created worries for the country's democracy, which is already reeling from corruption scandals involving lots of people, but notably involving Bolsonaro's sons. And you know, there are lots of toing and throwing about whether Bolsonaro can be impeached, but a lot of people are worried about the vice president, who's this very gregarious, outgoing former military general, who people are worried about his his commitment to democracy, and would he even be a tougher person to get out? And so there is a disdain for Congress. He Bolsonaro insults the press and the judicial system. He reminds Brazilians about the attractiveness of dictatorship. And so, you know, his core supporters remain ardent, but there's this growing, growing insatisfaction on all fronts, which is eroding his popularity. So you have these twin calamities of disease and economic recession, political instability is rising. And so it's it's a mess in Brazil. If you um, describe this region, Mexico and Brazil have historically been bookends, and they're both the economic engines of the region and are now led by populists from opposite ends who share friendship with the world's most controversial leader. So facing tremendous economic downturn, increased violence, spreading disease, it's a crazy, scary cocktail. Brazil and Mexico could not be more different nor have more in common today. To help us understand the outlook for these two endangered engines and the impact that their difficulties are going to have on the rest of the region, we're going to be joined by Michael Reed, senior editor at The Economist and author of the magazine's Bellow column. Born in England, Michael has lived in Latin America and Spain, covering the region for The Guardian and the BBC, as well as The Economist. He's authored several books in the region, won numerous well-deserved journalism awards. Michael Reed, thanks for joining us on Altamar. 
Thanks for inviting me. Let's just start at the basics. Brazil and Mexico together make up about half of Latin America, land, population, economy. The 2020 pandemic has been devastating and economic perspectives appear pretty dire, close to double-digit dips and GDP decline. So, But politics in both countries are highly polarized and complicating any resolution to this intertwined health and economic crisis. Are Mooney and I being way too dire here in our assessment for one half of Latin America? Is there any hopeful sign going on in Mexico and Brazil that you you think it's important to point to? No, I don't think you are being too dire. I think that's right. I think the outlook is very troubling in, in, in both those countries. And as you say, they are the two uh, giants, the two most important countries in Latin America, and it's troubling for the region as a whole. I mean, it's true of Latin America in general that um, that COVID struck a patient with um, prior conditions, both political and economic. And that's particularly true of Brazil and Mexico. And Mexico was in recession. Uh, Brazil was with this sluggish uh, growth. And uh, both have highly polarizing presidents who have yet to show that they can govern competently. How do they get out of this? You know, the recession and unemployment are rampant. How, how does the rebound happen? And is there anything that the world has to do, in, international institutions have to do? Well, I think there are two parts to, to that answer uh, or to that question. One is the epidemiological part. And in, in both countries, the incidence of uh, the virus has been extremely uh, intense. It's not uh, falling yet. Both have relaxed restrictions because they can't really sustain the lockdowns for any longer. But I think we're looking at several more months of a very serious uh, health situation. And then in economic terms, I would be slightly less pessimistic about Brazil than about Mexico because I think there is some possibility of a tax reform a vital and much needed tax reform in Brazil that might give a little bit of impetus to the economy. I think in Mexico, well, on the one hand, the fact that um, there is the new trade agreement with the United States and Canada, even if it's less good than the original, that is uh, some kind of safety belt, some kind of reassurance. But I mean, uh, the problem is that on paper, Mexico ought to have big opportunities at the moment because of the trend towards reshoring of some industries and business being worried about global supply chains. But uh, simply in the private sector, there simply isn't trust in, in the current uh, president and the current government in Mexico. Michael, what about the oil sector? These are both oil giants, at least in the Americas perspective. What is the outlook for this sector, which has been pretty hard hit during the pandemic? Well, I think one has to distinguish between the short term and, and medium term output. In the short term, I mean, we've seen and prices collapsed at the beginning of the pandemic in, in, in March. They've since recovered to the levels of the beginning of the year, more or less. Um, I think to the extent that there is a uh, there is a recovery in the world economy, which will be gradual, I think. But I mean, one would expect prices to pick up a bit. And then there is the kind of medium term question of, uh, you know, what is the future for fossil fuels in general? 
in the world, and and they're clearly, I mean, demand is likely to to peak fairly soon. Um, now, in terms of the oil industries in each country, I mean, you know, Brazil, uh, I think the outlook is better again than than Mexico, because um, in Mexico, um, President Lopez Obrador has essentially halted the energy reform that opened um, the sector to private investment. And uh, he's throwing a lot of public money at a, at a giant oil refinery, which, um, which many people doubt that Mexico actually needs. And um, that means there'll be less money for, for Pemex to invest in, in, in production and, and exploration and development. So you mentioned tax reform and, of course, hopefully more robust trade with the new agreement. Is there anything else policy-wise that these countries could do to kind of mitigate the impact of this upcoming depression policy in terms of foreign investment promotion or anything else at the government level that you think could be done? Well, I think a search for political consensus um, and less polarization in both countries would be extremely helpful, but I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, there's been slight moderation. And President Bolsonaro in Brazil has been slightly less confrontational for the last few weeks, but it tends not to last very long in his case. So, I mean, the obvious thing is uh, more political consensus and um, more investor-friendly a political stance in 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 Mexico, less political turmoil in Brazil would be helpful. But I mean, I'm not particularly optimistic that we will see these things. One of the sad numbers that we see is that the region was able to make some strides in terms of uh, decreasing inequality and eradicating so at least some of uh, the extreme poverty over the past 20 years. Do you think these efforts have been just ultimately erased and reversed? Well, that is the fear, obviously. I mean, there's a decade of progress on, on, or decade or more of progress on, on poverty um, eradication and the reduction of income inequality will, will be reversed. Um, I mean, much depends on whether political stability can be maintained and whether, um, therefore, the economic recovery that, um, that ought to happen on paper um slow though it may be does indeed happen also whether uh, governments um uh, many of which have taken uh, governments in Latin America in general many of which have taken measures to um help the poorest uh, and that's uh, true of Brazil more than Mexico whether they are able to sustain them and that's uh, that's not clear no can I, can I go back, Michael, to this issue that you you brought up, which I think is so important and it's too often skipped over in the analysis of are the right reforms happening or not, which is this issue of political consensus. And how does one explain such similarities of stubbornness, purposeful divisiveness, seeking to polarize in order to govern between two opposite ends of the political spectrum, one a sort of old-fashioned leftist and the other one is a pro-military right-winger, and yet they are fomenting the same policies. What, what is it in the Latin American moment that has propelled these two divisive figures forward? Well, I think the most important political fact about Jair Bolsonaro 
and Andres Lopez, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, is um, that both are populists, and and that populism uh, is more important than uh, where they sit on the left-right spectrum. So you know, both presented themselves as saviors of the country against what they portrayed as a corrupt uh, establishment, political establishment. Both uh, thrive on presenting themselves as um, the authentic representatives of the people, the people being defined to include only those who agree with them. It's uh, people rather than civil society or rather than citizens, uh, which in both cases are concepts that they uh, reject or are suspicious of. In both cases, they um, thrive on polarization and confrontation. Now, Andres Manuel López Obrador is much more popular than Jair Bolsonaro, and that's uh, partly to do with him, and it's partly to do with the nature of Mexico, I think. But um, I really think that's the, the, their defining political characteristic, uh, and, that, and populism is neither of the left nor right. It, the populism is simply a way of doing politics. Right. We, we have a populist president here in the United States, as you know, and, and the result, though speaking for the people, the result in terms of sort of the healthcare system has been really nefarious. And give us a sense of how, of the healthcare systems and what type of strain they're under in both Brazil and Mexico. Well, in both places, in many cities, hospitals are... Um, are overwhelmed still. And I mean, you raise an interesting point because um, both Bolsonaro and Lopez Obrador have followed the kind of Trump script, if you like, of um, minimizing the, um, the gravity of the virus, of giving more importance to the economy than to, than to quarantining, than to public health restrictions. But I don't actually think that that is an essential part of populism. I mean, um, in El Salvador, Naib Bukele is a populist who's been extremely hard-line on um, confinement and um, quarantining. And that's true of Viktor Orban in Hungary, true of um, Modi in in India. But um, the problem with that approach is the theory of these things, as we know, from the public health experts is that you buy time through restrictions on movement and, and, and activity. You buy time for health systems to to expand and to prepare and, and so on. And um, well, you know, that hasn't really worked in um, in, in Brazil or Mexico. Yeah, the other thing I'm, I'm, that strikes me is how much both countries have lost their international luster. You know. Just a few a few um, years ago, I mean, and long before all the corruption was exposed, former President Peña Nieto was seen as the great reformer, opening up to his country to new investments in oil. 
There was Lula in Brazil who was uh, going to solve uh, everybody's problems just by touching people. And now suddenly you have both countries having lost their international luster and, ser- and certainly in Brazil really endangered it by its, in- by its environmental policies. Indeed. I mean, I think um, the kind of fall from grace um, has been greater in Brazil. In, in, uh, and that's partly because uh, Bolsonaro's foreign policy is extremely uh, divisive and controversial uh, in the world. Um, that's particularly seen from Europe. I mean, um, the fact is that many people care a lot about climate change and therefore about deforestation now in, in, in the world. And Bolsonaro has neglected um, uh, the uh, previous efforts that uh, governments in Brazil have made to control deforestation although those had slipped before he came into office. They have slipped even more. And for the first time in a long time, there is the first time since the 1980s or early 1990s, there is a government in Brazil that um, actually is not sending the message that deforestation matters. No? Um, I think in the case of Mexico, I think the sort of sheen around Peña Nieto uh, as a reformer was much more short-lived and um, and uh, much less uh, justified than the kind of sense of progress that there was in Brazil. But, and, but I think that the sort of loss of reputation has perhaps been slightly less great because uh, López Obrador's foreign policy is essentially not to have a foreign policy and therefore it gets less noticed um, outside um, the United States and his um, approach to President Trump, you know, um, in which uh, once again one is tempted to think that um, the most important uh, thing that binds them together is that both are populists, and that is proved more important than left or right. I think uh, um, uh, López Obrador will be much less comfortable if there is a Biden presidency. Um, because the Democrats are more likely to care about um, human rights and governance and and so on in Mexico. Yeah? Um, so um, so you know that loss of reputation may end up mattering a bit more in Mexico um, uh, in the future. Mike, there's been a lot of rumor and speculation about whether or not Bolsonaro is going to finish his term, either by impeachment or other means. Uh, there's talk that that might not happen. What is your assessment? Well, I think there's no doubt that um, the legal constitutional grounds to impeach him exist. And uh, there are several. Uh, but one is that, um, because it wasn't just that, you know, it wasn't just that he he denied the seriousness of the virus. It wasn't just that he said, we, we have to keep the economy going. It was that he deliberately went out to flout his own health ministry's public health recommendations. And that, I think, is pretty clear. Uh, you know, the, the Constitution gives, uh, requires the president to um, to look after the lives of Brazilians, you know, to look out for the lives of Brazilians. I think it's pretty clear that he hasn't. Um, now, impeachment always um, in Brazil or the United States is both a legal process but also a political process, and the political conditions have to be there. 
And um, I think at the moment they're not. I think, that, and that's because Bolsonaro, partly through his confrontational approach, has preserved the support of a pretty solid thirty percent or so of um, public opinion. And um, you know, the last president who was impeached in Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, her approval ratings had fallen into single figures uh, several months before she was impeached. And she failed to take the steps needed, which are not very hard, to in Congress to to rally support. Um, uh, and uh, you know there have been some signs that Bolsonaro has made his peace with um, sectors of the traditional right in Brazil, let's say, in Congress. So I think at the moment one would say. Uh, that it's unlikely. I think the other factor there is uh, that were he to be impeached, uh, well, his vice president is um, is General Morale, and so you would have uh, the army taking power. Okay, he's retired, but I mean, um, uh, uh, you have this group of this cohort of military officers in in the in, in the Brazilian government there, and and so them taking over uh, would give pause to some. So, you know, this can change. A lot depends on um, what happens um, to the Brazilian economy. And a lot depends on how self-destructive or otherwise Bolsonaro is. But as of today, I would say that it's unlikely he will be impeached. Mike, two quick AMLO questions. We've heard and read a lot about the indignation that his visit to Donald Trump produced in Mexico. Is there any upside of the trip for the Mexicans and for the, at least for the Mexican economy. And then the second question is, why is AMLO still popular? He's still a, a comparatively popular leader despite all of his missteps. Yeah, I think on the first question, I mean, I think the upside is um, that the fact that this trade, trade agreement exists uh, and the fact that AMLO went to publicly endorse it and defend it, because that's what he was doing by going to Washington, is a sign that that, that basic structure of economic and business integration in North America is um, pretty resilient no? and, and is proof against somebody like him. Why is he so popular? I think firstly because he knows and understands Mexico and the Mexicans like no other politician. I mean, he has traveled around the country uh, time after time from town to town. Um, he, he knows how Mexicans think. He knows their situation. And he benefits from the fact that partly because of their own mistakes and partly for other reasons, the, um, the other two parties that were in power between 2000 and 2018 uh, on the whole, did not have a very successful record. And, um, uh, you know, Mexicans had twice rejected him in presidential elections. And if they, on the third occasion, chose him, it was because they felt they'd run out of alternatives, I think, for a significant number of them. Obviously, you know, he, he does have this uh, ability to to convince many Mexicans that he is on their side, that he's one of them. His whole personal austerity in that regard, I think, is symbolically important. He has 
this kind of almost Franciscan um, uh, approach to um, to life, duh, and 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 to the budget, um, and you know that goes down very well amongst many Mexicans. I mean, it will take time for them to realize that unless things ch he changes, you know, they're going to be worse off uh, in four years' time than they were in 2018. You know, you, you speak to Mexican business leaders. I speak to Mexican business leaders. I, I have to tell you, I've, I've never heard them sound like they do today. I mean, they're downright in a panic. I mean, it's true that there's always been two, two Mexicos, this ultra poor, backward Mexico. But I mean, Mexico is also a highly sophisticated country with a massive automobile industry, a massive space industry. I mean, it's a very modern place as well. And I just have never heard the business community talk the way they talk today uh, in this apocalyptic terms. Are they right to be fearful about what happens to Mexico in terms of really shedding off this modern, productive, innovative side of what Mexico is today, what Mexico has become today? Well, I think, you know, I think there are some people in in the government who understand uh, those preoccupations and who don't necessarily agree with everything that the president does. Um, but I think unless there is a change of direction, I think they are right. I mean, I think one's looking at, I'm afraid, at two possible scenarios. One is of gradual decline and one is of you know, less gradual decline. It's hard to see um, any other scenario. And that's because, why? That's because I think of two things. The first is that um, the president, President Lopez Obrador does not believe in checks and balances, does not believe in independent regulatory agencies, does not believe in um, uh, in a uh, an effective modern state uh, that is not simply an extension of the president himself on the one hand and on the other hand he's taken two or three key decisions which um, which give uh, which undermine um, confidence private sector confidence in policy I mean the the vetoing of um, the airport project in Mexico City when it was one-third built. Um, the, perhaps even more so, the veto, vetoing of a completed brewery uh, up in um, Baja California over water issues, um, which were, you know, could be addressed. Um, uh, uh, and the, the shutting down of that project and the tearing up of the contract terms on which private firms had invested in renewable energy. I think those things are, you know, you can't just pretend they, they don't matter. They do matter. It means that, you know, business people know that they cannot depend on a, uh, on a clear set of rules. And, you know, so that, that I think is what explains that mood. I mean, that some businesses will continue to make money in Mexico, of course. Uh, but, I mean, those things in a modern economy are problematic.
Michael Reed, it's great to hear your voice again. Thanks for joining us on Altamar. Thank you very much to both of you. And I hope next time we talk that uh, things are looking a little bit brighter. Peter, that was some great insight. And one of the surprising things was it feels, and, and he mentioned it repeatedly, that he has a different perspective and a different outlook for Brazil and Mexico. We had framed this as kind of two twin gigantic problems. And when we hear, when I hear Mike, I think Brazil is pretty much out of the woods and Mexico is in a lot of trouble. What do you think? Yeah, I, you know, I think it's also the difference between a continent-sized country of 210 million versus a large country of 135 million that can, you know, create its own route. But, you know, I think also the fundamental, there are some fundamentals of the Bolsonaro government economics minister who just wants to instill reform, a Congress that is motivated to create some type of tax reform. And it just feels like Mexico is just, particularly the way he described the ending there about sort of you just can't tear up massive contracts and pretend that it won't have uh, an effect. And he didn't mention the sort of tearing up of the uh, hydrocarbon rules. So I do think he's right that there is a difference in speed of recovery between Mexico and Brazil. Although it's interesting, though, is that the country out of the two that has the, the framework for growth, which is the trade agreement, should be doing a little better. And I just think that the element of uncertainty with what the government is going to do with the business community is what's causing all this tension and, and this like very dismal horizon for Mexico. Yeah, and we haven't seen the beginnings of political problems in Mexico because when a Biden administration, and I'm saying when, a Biden administration takes office, AMLO is just not going to get this free reign to do whatever he wants inside the country without any outside commentary. I mean, there's going to be a focus on violence, a focus on drugs, a focus on human rights, a focus on political freedoms and process that Trump just doesn't care about. So there will be added tension in the bilateral relationship, the North American relationship with Canada and the United States, without a doubt. And that will replicate, of course, in the rest of the region. And um, all of what happens in Mexico and Brazil will very likely spread to the rest of the continent. So we hope, like Mike, that things look better soon. And as for us, thank you for joining us in Altamar. See you next time. Mm -hmm.